I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11. We continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark, walking step in step with Jesus through Mark's account. And we come to chapter 11 this morning. And we are actually a week early to this text. Uh, usually, uh, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. And this is the text for that. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the people laying down uh, the palm branches, yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And part of the reason why we are where we are in the schedule, the original plan was to hit the resurrection, as Mark describes it in his gospel, on Easter. And then our family got COVID, and so that just threw the whole schedule out of whack. So what we're going to do uh, is this week we're going to deal with the triumphal entry, and then next week we're going to go to the cross, and then the week after that we'll hit the resurrection, and then we'll have to do some cleanup work after that in the Gospel of Mark and cover stuff that we didn't get to cover in the time that uh, had originally been planned, but here we are. Let's press forward. Mark chapter 11, and we pick up the reading in verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before... And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den, a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, 
they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, and Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, or if uh, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let us pray. Lord God, as we seek to walk step in step with Jesus, we pray you would help us to see clearly from this episode, this event in the life of our Lord, when He stepped into the temple, what it means for us today. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mark 11 begins with the Jewish people in Jerusalem rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He sends someone in to get a colt for him. So that's what he's going to ride into Jerusalem. As he's making his way into Jerusalem, the people are putting down their cloaks and they on the road and they are spreading leafy branches, the palm branches, down before Jesus. This is a gesture that is communicating that they see Jesus as so worthy, as so important, that he can't even walk on the stony ground. They had to put things down that he would walk on that rather than walking on the ground itself. It is a sign of, again, showing Jesus' worth. And then it is accompanied with worship language. Verse 9, Hosanna, save! Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, in the highest. In the past, in Jesus' ministry, He has told people not to go and, and, and say too much or, or to not say anything at all. Unlike those previous episodes, now Jesus is freely allowing the people to say these things. He is welcoming it. Now, what is very interesting is you get to verse 11. He entered Jerusalem goes into the temple, looks around at everything. It's late, so he leaves. What? If you understand the way Mark has been leading us along here, and, and everything in the, in the life of our Lord, it has been leading to this moment. He has resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. This is the climax of that resolutely setting his face to Jerusalem. A triumphal entry. And so, it is, again, intriguing. He, he goes into the temple, looks around, and then he just leaves. <laughs> Why does he do that? And what's, what's, the, what's the primary purpose of this section of Scripture here? What is Jesus communicating? Especially when He comes back the next day and He starts running people out. Driving them off. And saying about the temple, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. 
You've just turned it into a den of robbers. Well, what we will see is that Jesus is teaching His disciples, even us, who follow Him today. Jesus is teaching us about the high priority of holiness. Why does He come in and then just leave? And then why does He come back the next day and cleanse the temple? And then we can also ask, has Jesus done anything like this before in His ministry? The answer is yes. John 2 records how at the beginning of His ministry, He did a similar thing. He, he made, in that particular instance, He made a whip of cords. And those who are familiar with that particular practice of making a whip of cords will tell you it will take about three hours to make. Think about that. He, it took three hours to make. And He's watching everything that's going on around Him as He's making this whip. And then He turns right around and He starts driving people out with the whip. He's done this before. And now we come to the end of His ministry and He returns to Jerusalem now for the final time. And so why does He go in, look around, and then leave? I think it's part, partly in, to, to see if anything's changed. Or is it just business as usual? The, the same old, same old. The, the things that they've been doing. Again, he's, he's going to check to see if anything has changed. Is it business as usual or did they take what has happened to heart? Have they repented? And what he finds is the former. It is business as usual. There has been no repentance. They continue to buy and sell in the temple market there. Uh, they, they continue to extort people. That was part of the practice there uh, as well. And so he sees this the, the first day and he leaves. And then he comes back. And again, this isn't, uh, this isn't sightseeing. This isn't tourism. His disciples will try to do that in chapter 13. Jesus, look at the stones. Look at how, how magnificent the structure is. And of course, in that instance, He says, you see all this? Not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, what do you mean? When will this happen? And what will be the signs of this happening? And that's when you get uh, the, the prophecy there of the destruction of Jerusalem. But in the meantime, again, Jesus is not here on a sightseeing tour. Wow, look at how impressive the temple is. He's got purpose, there's intention, and He wants to see, is this divine institution fulfilling its God-given function or not? And it was not. And I've got to believe that that first night, verse 11 there, He was disappointed as He left to go back to Bethany. Disappointed that Again, the people had not repented. And so he leaves that night in verse 11, but he knows the next day is going to come. You have this instance of, of the fig tree. We'll circle back to that in a moment. We come to verse 17, and a heinous thing has happened where the house of God, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, has been turned into, made into, a den of robbers. It's an ugly thing. I believe it was Francis Chan who was, uh, who illustrated it by 
bringing in onto a tarp a pile of manure into the sanctuary where he was a pastor at the time. The thought crossed my mind until I remembered, oh yeah, a minister I know did that one time and it didn't go well. I guess Francis Chan can get away with stuff like that. I don't know. But, I mean, that's, that's what, it, what, what it was like, what it is like when this divine institution is not fulfilling its God-given function. It's just a, a pile of manure in the sanctuary of God. It stinks. It's terrible. They've lost all sense of holiness when it comes to the temple. It has become common when it is supposed to be holy. And then again, if this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, what about the Gentiles? Well, they've got their temple court, the court of the Gentiles way. You're just missing it. You're missing it all the way along. What does this communicate to the Gentiles? When you turn this into a den of robbers, well, your God lives there? Your God resides there in, in the most holy place? Are you sure? They would be disinclined to actually believe that God, the real God, the, the one true and only God, lives there. The Jewish people, they've lost sight of the holiness of God. Jesus has not. Indeed, Jesus is God come in the flesh. And He is not afraid to confront their unholiness and to make commentary on it. And, and He confronts it by driving out those who were selling and, and who are bringing in to the temple and, uh, and, and the, the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And He didn't have a problem making sure nobody's carrying anything in here. right? Drop it and leave. And again, the commentary is in verse 17 there. The scribes, the chief priests, verse 18, who heard it, they will have none of it. And so they, they seek to kill Him. In fact, they're afraid of Him. right? That's what the text says. For they feared Him. And it gives us an idea of what Jesus is dealing with here. He is dealing with, with people men in particular, the chief priests and the scribes, who have disconnected themselves from the holiness of God. They want nothing to do with the holiness of God, and they don't really view God as holy, holy, holy. It's just become something that, well, they have to do this. Rather than viewing it as a privilege, something I, I get to do for God. As a priest, to, to stand in the presence of God on behalf of the people. That was the function. But they've even lost sight of their identity, which is just to be holy in the presence of God. Hmm. Who is it that are the chief priests, or excuse me, who are the priests of God today, I should say? Because the, the chief priest, the high priest, the, that's, that's Jesus. But who are the priests today? We are, yeah. Look around and you see those who are to be priests. And the primary function of the priest was to be holy in the presence of God. Why Peter, in writing to those who are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, 
the, where he starts in chapter 1 is, be holy, for God is holy. And then, as the holy priesthood of God, now we steward that to the people. Again, that was what the temple and the whole sacrificial system was to be. And it's not. It's become something less than it should be. And so what Jesus is advocating for, a radical view of the holiness of God, so foreign to them that the best they can come up with is, we've got to murder Jesus. We need to get Him out of the way. We need to get rid of Him. Rationality has gone out the window. There's no debate, no rebuttal, no discussion. We've got to kill Him. Jesus must die. That's how callous these hearts have become. How hard the hearts of the leaders, the spiritual leaders, have become when presented with truth. They cannot respond. They refuse it. But the people's reaction is very interesting. Because while the, the leaders in verse 18 want to try and kill Him because they're afraid of Him, we're told that the, the, the reason the leaders feared Jesus was because, the, the rest of verse 18, it's because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Wow! This is a guy who gets it, right? They, the, the, the people, their reaction is very different. They acknowledge. They are acknowledging a prophet is in their midst. Wow! Why didn't we think of that before? Right on, Jesus! Right? That's the people's response. Now, intertwined with this whole temple instance is that fig tree account. The fig tree. And, and in fact, this fig tree kind of, well, it, it kind of interrupts the whole narrative here, right? But I believe it's intentional the way Mark is rehearsing the narrative for us. Jesus, uh, the, the, so he goes in the temple that, and it's late and so he sees and he leaves, right? And then the next morning, verses 12-14, through 14, the next morning, he sees a, a fig tree in the distance, and he wants some figs from it. He wants some food. There's nothing there. And so he pronounces the curse on that tree. And then the following day after that, after the whole temple showdown and all that, the next day, verse 20 and following, look, Jesus, look what happened. The, the fig tree has withered away to its roots. And so, you know, I guess we might expect Jesus to say something like, well, yeah, that tree made me mad, right? But, but it's, it's nothing like that. He gives a, a very different response there in verse 22. Have faith in God. Wow. And, and then he's got teaching about our uh, prayer life. He's got teaching about forgiveness that follows on that. Um, why that response? Have faith in God? He's connecting it to the temple. And what's going on with the temple? Chief priests and the scribes, they don't, they don't have faith in God. Their, their faith is in themselves. And again, it's the drudgery of, we've got to do this sacrificial system thing. And then there's also 
Again, from a distance, that fig tree looked valuable. But when you got close, you realized there's nothing there. And in a similar way, from a distance, that temple looks impressive. But then when you get up close and in the midst of it, there's no value there. It is worthless. The whole system has become flawed. The fig tree is valuable for figs, for food, for sustenance. The temple is supposed to be valuable as a house of prayer, a place where true worship to the one true and only God is supposed to take place and people can draw near to the presence of God. And it's not that at all. Again, all this took place because, verse 15, He entered the temple. Jesus entered the temple. We're talking about the temple. And by the way, spoiler alert for when we do get to chapter 13, Jesus is going to say this whole thing is going out of business. The, the clock is ticking, and it's only a matter of time, and it is. It's less than 40 years after this that the temple is destroyed by the Roman army. But even before that, the whole sacrificial system, Jesus is going to fulfill it in a matter of a week, according to the narrative here. Jesus will fulfill that by going to the cross and dying, laying Himself, offering Himself as our sacrifice for sin on the cross, the altar of the cross. He's talking about the temple. But we know, this side of the cross, that we are the temple, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says it very plainly. Do you not know that all y'all, because it's a plural you, we don't really have that in English, but that's the force of it, that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? It's a rhetorical question. You are. Brothers and sisters, we are the temple of God, and God's Spirit dwells within us. Let me just ask, what about us? If Jesus were to take a stroll through His temple, enter into it and look around, what would He find? What do you find people that have a, when it comes to holiness, we, that's a high priority for us. What would you find? What do you find a faith that acknowledges that high standard of holiness? How high? You see, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians is not the only place where Paul leans into that temple imagery. You get to chapter 6, he comes back around. And whereas in chapter 3, it had the corporate view in mind, all y'all are God's temple, now he brings it right down to the individual basis. And it, it crawls right into your lap if you're willing. Where he says, you, singular, each one of you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in the context, you want to you talk about holiness and, and not allowing any impure thing in the temple of God. Chapter 6, earlier in that chapter, when you get to verses 9 and following, you do have this discussion about what should not characterize the people of God. Verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the fornicator nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, this is repeating something he's already mentioned back in chapter 5, where in that section he talks about how Christ is our Passover. And, and in the cross, Jesus is the one who is taken upon himself our sins so that God can look upon us and he doesn't see our sins. They're passed over having been in Christ. And he says, and, and Paul there is saying, look, as the church corporately, there ought not to be individual members who are caught up in gross immorality. Well, what kind of things? Verse 11 of chapter 5. But no, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, there's the Christian, if he is guilty of fornication or greed, is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Paul has expanded that slightly when you get to chapter 6. You're God's temple. You're to be holy unto the Lord. And so gross immorality has no place in the temple. We need to allow the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to tell us what belongs and what doesn't belong in God's temple. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is doing just that. Is there any sin, any trespass in your life, your life, my life, that has just become standard procedure? That we're not really struggling against, we're not really fighting against it. It's just, hey, you know, it's just, it's just there. There's no longer a question for us if it should be there or not. We're just comfortable with it. Maybe more importantly, what's our reaction? What's our reaction to the commentary of Christ as it pertains to what should not be in our temple? Do we want to kill them all over again? Are we angry? Ah, no, that's not what it... That's not, it may say, that's not what it means, though. We kind of lose all rational thought. Do we want to disconnect? Or do we, like the people, stand in awe and amazement and in sackcloth and ashes, repent? Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians concludes this way, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Brother Gary hit the nail on the head about all that autonomy business. You think you're a law unto yourself? That's what autonomy means, by the way. Auto, self, nomos, meaning law. You are a, a, a law unto yourself? Well, then guess what that means about God's law for you? Now we, if, if God's Spirit lives within us, we must submit to the law of God. The, the mind that is set on the flesh, that's hostile to God's law. It refuses to submit to God's law. But those who have the Spirit of God living within them seek to put to death, 
mortify the deeds of the body. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And if you need to be reminded of that price tag, go take a good long look at the cross of Christ. So what do we do? Well, we've talked, Paul has at length talked about what doesn't belong in the temple. It does belong there. So glorify God in your body. All things that are good and noble and right and just. Your body as a temple needs to glorify God. Needs to make much of the majesty of God. And so, again, we're confronted with the question of what, what's in our temple? What's in your temple? Only you can answer that in your own heart of hearts. What's the, let's use a technical term, shall we? What's the, what's, what's the crud that needs to be removed from your temple? Right? The first step, by the way, is to identify it. To name sin for what it is. And the second step is, by the Spirit of God, put that sin to death. I got a sermon. I'll preach it sometime, I'm sure. It's called Hacking Agag to Pieces. You remember King Agag? This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 when, when King Saul is king over Israel. And they were supposed to go and wage war against the Amalekites and in fulfilling the judgment of God upon Amalek, they were supposed to wipe them off the planet. Saul had other ideas. And so he and his men took some of the loot and he took Agag hostage, King Agag. King Saul took him hostage. And that's when Samuel, the prophet, showed up. And Saul's trying to justify his actions, and I believe it's there that Samuel says, uh, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? And Saul, again, trying to justify his actions, Samuel says, no, you, you can't. God, you had instruction from God what to do, and you refused to do it. And Samuel turns to walk away and leave. Saul grabs hold of his cloak, and it tears. And Samuel... I mean, just the prophet of God, right? Just turns around and says, that's what God's going to do to the kingdom. He's going to rip it out of your hands. That comes along later with David. But before you get there, the end of chapter 15, this is, this is uh, the PG-13 part of the, of the story. Samuel takes a sword and he goes and he hacks Agag to pieces. Kills him. Put the sword in the Spirit's hand and hack your agag to pieces. Whatever it is, that sin needs to be eliminated from your life. Identify it and then by the Spirit, put it to death. Go back and read Romans 8 if you need refresher on that. Identify that crud and get rid of it. Or maybe, how about the positive side of this? Identify, identify those holy behaviors and actions 
that ought to characterize us. And, and a good place to start would be, of course, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or how about those things Jesus talks about in, in Mark 11? Your prayer life. That's a good thing. How can, how, can you, uh, how can you enhance that? How can you strengthen that? Forgiveness. Ooh. <laughs> Who do you need to forgive? This is what it means to keep holiness as a high priority as the temple of God with God's Holy Spirit living within us. I guess a third thing would be realize you have help. Brothers and sisters, absolutely. We, we all together as the church, we are to collectively the temple of God. And, and God's Holy Spirit lives among His people. And truly, the greatest helper of all is the Holy Helper. The Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. We have help in the pursuit of holiness. Let's commit this to prayer, shall we? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, was, is, and is to come. We confess that we need Your help, Father. Strengthen us by Your Spirit in the inner person, in our inner beings, so that we can be holy temples set aside for You. We pray that we would... We pray that You would Kindle within us a holy hatred of sin. And that we would love the things that You love. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of Your glory. May we be full of Your glory and glorify You in our bodies. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.